Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 12, please. Genesis chapter 12 will also be in Genesis chapter 1, so we'll make it easy today, easy places to find. These days for all of us are full of activity and full of pressures and full of reminders of how life can be for us. Today I want to kind of try to just kind of for a moment nudge you out of the present reality and I want you to look backwards with me for a little bit. Because the reality is that in most of our lives, I suspect that it's true for all of us, but in most of our lives as we look backwards, there are those individuals whose presence seems to tower above the landscape of our lives. People that God has strategically placed into our lives in the past who seem to embody pieces of who God is. Maybe it was someone who had great wisdom that you learned from, or maybe it was someone who had the ability to speak peace into your situation in a way that nobody else could do. And you just look backwards and you find those people who just seem to have a really good grip on what it means to walk with Christ. I've got a number of those people in my life. Some of them are family members. Actually, different family members hold different points of reference for me on this topic. My mother probably embodies best for me what it is for someone to walk with Christ and to be so intimate with him that it just pours out of their everyday life. My dad has points of his life and his leadership that have been instructive for me that someday maybe we'll put into a book. Um, I have educators. I have church friends. I have deacons. People that in my life, as I look backwards, help to make me something of who I am. It's not their fault that I am who I am, but they helped me in a lot of different ways. And I suspect that's true for you. I know that that's true for churches. Every church that I've served, we look backwards and we find those individuals within the life of the church who really did help that church be what it needed to be. Somehow God used them in ways that kind of elevated them above the crowd. Now, having done that little exercise of pushing us backwards, what I really want to do today is to bring it into the now and ask the question of you, how likely is it that you would be one of those people for somebody else in their life? As someone else looks backward on their life, is it likely, given the way you are currently walking through life and living your life, is it possible that somebody years from now, now might look backwards and say, this individual was noteworthy for me? Last week we started a series that's really kind of intended to push us into that question. As we find in Hebrews chapter 11, there are those people that God has said these lives were noteworthy as it comes to how they lived out this whole idea of living in communion with God. And so what we're going to do is starting last week, and we'll pick it up here today, is we'll take Abraham's life, Abram first, and his name gets changed to Abraham later, and we'll talk about that and the significance of that when the time comes, but 
uh, I want us to look at him and to hook our wagon to him, so to speak, as we move forward to see what it was about him that was commendable as far as God was concerned. And in his life, we'll find a number of principles of what it means to live by faith. And those things are the things that God puts into us or makes available to us. And in the final analysis, those are the things that make our lives noteworthy. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, we find this entry of a guy named Abram into the biblical record. And actually, we could go back into chapter 11 in the last few verses, and there's some information there. But Abram's story starts good and proper here in chapter 12 in verse 1. As we go through this, and actually we're only going to be in this verse today. And if the early service is any indication of what it's going to be in here, we're not even going to make it through this verse today. But not to worry, we've got about nine months to get through this verse. Uh, Or not, if you don't want to wait nine months, we'll just uh, take it as it comes. But two principles I want us to get today, and for sure one, if we have time, we'll get to the other one. Here's the principle. Your view of God directly impacts your willingness to trust God. The way you perceive who God is will play directly into whether or not you're willing to live by faith. I told you last week, this is not one of those topics uh, that you sometimes expect. I think the word faith and faith as it's attached to living uh, has kind of been commandeered by some of the TV evangelist stuff. Uh, and I, I won't attack them today. I'll just say that most of what I hear on TV relative to that has nothing to do with the biblical point of faith. Let's talk a little bit about this name thing with God. Most of you in here are probably too young to remember, but there was a radio, excuse me, a television show many years ago. It was part of the sitcom genre, which means that about half of it wasn't worth watching. But uh, it was called WKRP in Cincinnati. How many of you remember that? And if you raise your hand, you just aged yourself and dated yourself in here. Okay? There was a guy, uh, one of the reasons that I appreciate that television show now uh, is because it was about a radio station. And one of my best friends in all of life, one of those guys who towers above the landscape of my life, was the owner and the general manager of a radio station down in the Rio Grande Valley for many years. And the more I got to know him, the more that TV show made sense. All right? If you don't work at a tele, I mean, a radio station, let me just put it to you this way. What it sounds like when it comes through the radio is nothing like the reality of what happens there. There's some weird, jacked-up people that work at radio stations, as a rule. And this television show captured that. They had a news director, a little nerdy guy. By the, Anybody remember what his name was? Les Nesman. And the reason I remembered this is because there was one program, one week that they showed this, and it was one little piece of the story. And one of the ladies there in that office had a boyfriend, and he was the epitome of a man's man. You know, muscles popping out of his shirt. Kind of like me. Kind of, just a lot like me. <laughs> he was a man's man, and he did all this, you know, macho stuff, and when he talked, he grunted like, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. And his name was something like Rocky. I don't remember exactly, but it was one of those manly kind of names. 
And what stands out about that whole thing to me, there was this discussion between Les Nesman, the news guy, and the boyfriend of one of the the people there, the employees. And um, this guy was letting his testosterone just pour out into the room. And he made this comment as he's being introduced to the news director, the little nerdy guy named Les. He said, you know... I've always believed that a man's name says something about his character. My name's Rocky. What's your name? And the little news director guy understood what was being said. and He kind of ducked his head and he said, my name's Les. Does that capture your Christian identity? Are you one of those Christians who seems to have it all together? Or might your Christian name be... Less. Let's not worry about our name today so much. Let's worry about God's name. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said, well, let's just stop there. The word, the name that we look at here is Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1. If you'll look in your Bible, almost certainly in the translation that you have, The word Lord there, the name there, is in all capital letters. Is that true in your Bible? Okay. Now, this if you want an explanation for that, I'm going to give you the quick one, but you can go back into the early part of your Bible. Usually it's written in there. An explanation from the general editors of that Bible who put it all together, and they're the ones who help make the decisions on how different things are translated and all of that kind of stuff. But in that part of the Bible, you'll find a little section that will talk about how they do the name of God. And so today what I want to do is to help us understand this principle, your perception of God, how you think about God or see God will directly impact your ability or your willingness to trust God. And this is the first of two that I want us to look at today. And actually, we're going to look at this one second when you really get right down to it. But the word, the name Lord, when it's all capital letters like that, is actually a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. And we take our word, for instance, Jehovah, which is really not a biblical word in and of itself. It was kind of grew through the church through history because it took, they took the word Yahweh. I won't go into all of that history of that today. I'll just say it this way. When you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it's referring to the word in Hebrew, which is Yahweh. But I want you to go back with me before we come to this. I want you to look at chapter 1 and verse 1. It doesn't take long in the Bible for God to show up. In chapter 1 and verse 1 of the book of Genesis, it says, In the beginning... Okay, now what does it say there in your translation? Does it say Lord or God? God. God is the correct answer. If yours says Lord, you need to trade that Bible in. We'll get you a good one. In the beginning, God... What? Created. You hear the action of that word, the the business orientation of that word created? We'll come to Genesis 12 in a moment, but here's what I want you to get. Words and names particularly are significant when you come to Scripture. And especially when it comes to the name of God. In Genesis 1, which is where we find the record of creation... The word that is used to refer to God there that we translate into English as God, the Hebrew word is Elohim. 
That's a significant thing for us. We need to get what he's talking about there because in the chapter 12, verse 1, those people who heard those words being said or read for the first time would have heard and Yahweh said to Abram, and they would have set that off against what they see in Genesis 1, which it says, and Elohim created. Hear me very carefully, please. It is not two different gods, okay? It's the same God... The only God who is referred to with different names. And we find this all through scripture where we'll find the name of God and we'll add some other kind of word to it that will help to explain a little bit about that part of his character. El Elyon, for instance, or El Shaddai, most of us are familiar with. And it comes from the root word, which is El, which means God. And Elohim, as we find it in Genesis 1, is the picture of God who is the creator. Here's why that's significant. Because in the Hebrew hearing, as Hebrew people would have heard this for the first time, and they see Genesis 1 and it says, and Elohim created this, it lays a picture out for them of the God, the only God, who happens to be beyond us. None of you spent your week creating universes. I know you create your own little world, but that's kind of a psychosis most of the time. None of us have the ability of Genesis 1 where we find Elohim, God, as he creates. The picture in scripture, as we work our way through it, when we find this word Elohim, is a word that emphasizes the transcendence of God, the majesty of God. The marvelous nature of who he is. And we might pull it down and say this. That we are us and God, Elohim, is beyond us. Let me just stop for a second. And let's drive the importance of that picture of who God is. As it's painted by that name. Drive it home for us. I got up this morning. So did you, apparently. You're here. But I got up this morning somewhere, I don't know, the first time was about 12.45 and the second time was about 2 something and finally about 4.30 or so I just decided to quit fighting it and get up. I went outside. You know what's true about southeast Texas at 4.30 in the morning? It's, it's, well, it wasn't too hot this morning, but it was definitely dark. Let me give you a little homework. Why don't you make it a point to get up early? Or if you're not a get up early kind of person, wait till way late at night and go outside. Now, some of you live out in the country. Some of you live in town. If you live in town, you might actually have to drive somewhere to do this. But get in your vehicle and drive out to some place out in the country where it's good and dark. You have a good slot between the trees where you can see a good portion of the sky. And look up into that piece of the universe that you can see. Now, that's a huge statement that I just made. Because there are more pieces of the universe that you cannot see than what you can see. So let's just go ahead and build our tent with where we can see it and go out and take a look and look up into the sky and take it all in. Here are stars that we're looking at. Now, I'm not the science guy in the bunch, okay? 
But I do know this. I know that at least we're told this, and I take it as fact from the people who are supposed to know this kind of stuff, that the light from the stars that we see that registers on our eyes was actually sent on its way to earth light years ago. In other words, we're not looking at light being generated in real time. It takes a while for that to get here. Who in the world could be strong enough to create something like that? The fact that there are stars that we can see, the fact that we can look through telescopes and especially those who go now out into space, Hubble and other ones like that, that we can look out into the, what scientists say are the furthest reaches of our solar system and beyond. How do they even know that? How did those stars, how did this universe get to be there? Genesis 1 says, and God spoke it. And it was. Does that sound like somebody that we ought to bow our knee to? Does it sound like God has something going for him that is beyond what we have going for us? The word Elohim, the name Elohim as we find it in scripture should drive us to be reminded about the otherness, the transcendence of God. Maybe you're not a star kind of person. Maybe you're a fisherman. You ever stop to take in all the stuff that has to happen for you to be able to get out onto the middle of a lake and fish? Certainly you need a boat or something like that. But think about what's going on underneath the surface of the water. Think about the water itself. Just take a cup of water and take it and do the things with it that scientists do. Subject it to study under a microscope. Look at all the complexities of the basic elements of our lives. And look and see God's hand in that. And be reminded of Genesis 1 where it says, And God said, Let there be. And there was. Genesis 1 is full of... Of Elohim. And those things must drive us to worship. They must drive us to the point of acknowledging, I I got a lot going for me, but I don't have nearly enough going for me to be able to compare myself with Elohim who is God. What is it that triggers worship for you? What are the things that seem to come in line for you that help you worship? This is a dangerous topic for a preacher in a church where the choir just got through singing the special. Because the reality is that many of us have reduced worship to simply responding to some kind of music. That's okay. Matter of fact, I'm guilty of that on a regular basis. I love our music program here. I think our guys are... What's your name, Brian? Brian and... <laughs> and the rest of our group do a great job in helping us. Let me tell you something. Worship doesn't require music. If your worship requires music and a certain kind of music, then you're missing out on Elohim and who God is. Take some time and stop. Put your life on pause for a few moments and be impressed with the majesty of God. That drives us to worship. And remember what I said. How we view God definitively impacts whether or not we're willing to trust him in our lives. 
Let's look at the second one here. Now we're back to Genesis 12. Get a good picture of Elohim and who God is in his creative majesty. Genesis 12 uses a different word for God. This is the word Yahweh. We've already talked about that a little bit. It's the one that we find throughout much of the Old Testament. And the picture that it creates for us is not necessarily only God as the transcendent one. That's always there with God because that's always part of his character. But Yahweh, and especially in the hearing of Hebrew people in the first times that they would have heard these stories being told around campfires or in their villages and the first time that they would have been able to read this somehow, when they hear this name Yahweh as it's put out on paper, it's a different kind of thing. It pulls in the idea of Elohim, but this name of God uh, communicates something far different. Elohim leaves us believing that God is out there with all of his power and all of his majesty and all of his glory, and yet he's separate from us. Yahweh is the name that is used for that same God who decides to stretch across the gap, to reach down into the human experience and say to that guy named Abram, to that group of people called the children of Israel and ultimately through his son Jesus Christ to reach out and say to people, I am God and I am with you. A God who is distant and separate, no matter how strong he is, is not a personal God. But the name Yahweh communicates to us this God who says, I want to be part of your life. I want to have something to say about your life. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, the writer says, And now the Lord said to Abram, You see the connection? You see the stretch? You see the move out of the glory of heaven across into the dirty part of life. And this God named Elohim, also known as Yahweh, says, I'm here. And Abram, let's talk. God is transcendent, Elohim, but he is active and close, Yahweh. You remember Moses and the children of Israel? I think I might have even mentioned this a little bit last week, but here's Moses. And he's got this call from God. Now that in itself argues for the use of Yahweh as we find all through the book of Exodus. All through the Old Testament, it's God who says, I'm here. I, I, I want to have a piece of your life. I want you to have a piece of my life. And he says to Moses, Moses, i got a job for you. He says to Abram, Abram, i got a plan for you. He says to Isaiah, i got a job for you. We go all through the Old Testament and we find Yahweh saying to people, let's do this together. That's the picture of the God who says, I'm here. Elohim, he is beyond us transcendent. Yahweh, he reaches across that gap to make life possible for us. And again, the whole point of this message, the first principle of living by faith, is that how you view God is going to definitively impact your willingness to trust him. Let me give you a personal example to show you how that plays out. A number of years ago, <laughs> a lot of stuff in my life now is a number of years ago. 
the older you get, the more that's true, I guess. This was back in a time when we had three young children living at home. Uh, I was working, but wasn't making a whole lot of money. And the, here's the problem with kids. Those of you who have young kids, let me encourage you today and tell you they're going to grow up and they're going to eat you out of house and home. And my kids grew up and started eating. And my boys could really eat, but nobody ate like my daughter did. I mean, she could shovel it home. And so always for us, grocery shopping was a torturous experience. How do you possibly buy enough food to keep those gerbils full? You just can't do it. And I was learning a little bit in those days about what it means to live by faith. As a matter of fact, this story that I'm about to tell you grows out of that same time frame that I told you about last week where I went to God and I said, if this all there is a Christian life, I'm out. But if there's more, show me more. And be careful when you pray that kind of stuff because God takes that seriously. So here we were and we had about a week. Matter of fact, I think it was exactly a week until our next payday came and we had we had no food. I mean, we didn't have enough food. Let's say it that way. I had a $20 bill in my wallet, and that's all I had. In those days, I was still flying back and forth from the Rio Grande Valley to Houston on Mondays, having to rent a car or get picked up at the airport one way or the other, drive across town, go to seminary all day long, go back to the airport at night, take the last flight back, fly down to the valley, driving an hour either way at the, to get to the airport. So that was our deal. I had a $20 bill. It was Sunday morning. That's all I had. We didn't have enough money in the bank for anything else. I had $20. And God said, I'll take that 20. What, what do Christians do when we get in binds? We panic. It's the Christian way. Or we worry. That's what really mature Christians do. You know, regular Christians just panic, but mature Christians worry. You know what worry is? Worry is panic that is stretched out over time. So here we are Sunday morning, I got $20 to my name and a week to go before payday and God says, you know that $20 you got in your wallet? And I said, who's, who's talking? You know $20 you got in your wallet? Yes. I want it. So now I'm in this discussion with God. Now I gotta tell you, if I was thinking about Elohim, I wasn't. If I was thinking in those terms, I'd have been much more careful about what I was thinking. Because the Elohim part of God is the one that we all say, you know, God could squash me like a roach if he wants to. So I'm in this discussion with the Hebrew word for Yahweh because it's with us and we're in this covenant and we're talking about it. And God says, I want that last $20. And my answer to that was, uh, no. And God's relentless about this. And I won't go into all of the discussion that we had, but he reminded me back about that other prayer. You said you want to know if there's more to this thing than just what you've been doing. What you've been doing is holding on to your own money. Okay, now you're getting personal. Bottom line is, I got to church, and I took that $20 bill as the offering plate came along, and I very reverently took it out of my pocket and threw it into the plate. 
begrudgingly surrendering my cash. You ever do that with God? I'm not talking about just about the cash thing. I know some of you are going, here he goes talking about money. No, I'm talking about values. There's a big difference. You ever have God challenge your values? So, I turned it in. Gave it over. Sacrificed for the good of the team. All the while, in the back of my mind, I was praying this prayer. God, I cannot believe that you took money out of the mouths of my children by taking that $20. God, I can't believe that you would take my last $20. I can't believe you would do this. You know what God kept saying to me when I was having that discussion? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. That afternoon, okay, now it doesn't always happen this way, but as it turns out, that afternoon, I went home. We had evening activities and stuff that I had to be prepared for, but I went home and I told, back in those days I was running. Uh, I don't do that a lot these days. Uh, but in those days I was running a lot. And so I went home and I told Teresa I was going to go for a run. And, uh, so not too far from where we live, we lived out on the edge of town and not too far out of town, there was this place that was designed to be a little subdivision, a gated community. Uh, but it didn't make. All they were able to do was build the clubhouse part of it and build the streets, and nobody ever built a house out there. And so it was an abandoned area. Uh, and so it was a good place for me to go out, and I would get inside the, uh, the fence line. There was no gates or anything to keep me out. But and I would just run the perimeter of that, and then I would run back home. And so it was a good probably 45-minute run or so. Uh, and so on this day, I went in. I got away from the house about a mile and a half or so, and whatever it was, and I got into that little community and I started around the perimeter of that gated community. And as I was doing that, I noticed something on the ground that was black. And uh, so I stopped and I picked it up and it was a pager. Now, many of you in here don't know what a pager is, okay? Back in the days before cell phones, uh, business people would often carry pagers and drug dealers also did. Um, I don't know what yours was, but... That's how that went. And so I picked up this pager and I could see, you know, the company that it was with and it had somebody's name on it. And so, uh, it was kind of broken, almost like somebody had just thrown it. Um, so I picked it up and I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, that probably, since it belongs to the deal, I had the deal on the if found, please contact. And so I did that and I went home and carried it home with me and I called that place and, uh, there was nobody there. So I had to call them the next morning, Monday morning. I got up, went to work and remembered that I had it. So I called that place and I said, I found this. Do you want it? They said, yeah, just bring it by if you will. We'd appreciate it. So I did all of that stuff and I made it over to this place and I turned it in. And as I was walking out the door, the girl behind the desk said, wait a minute. Um, hold on just a second. I said, okay, what's the matter? She said, uh, you, do you want, uh, the reward for this? Hey, reward? I'm, I'm good with rewards. What are, you, what are you talking about? She said, oh yeah, when these people turn them in like this, because it costs so much for us to replace them and all, uh, we like to just kind of give, you know, somebody an appreciation of our thanks for finding it and bringing it in. I said, sure, okay. So she disappeared and she came back. She handed me an envelope. How much money do you think was in that envelope? $20. The exact amount of money that God had told me the day before, I want that. 
Now, let me tell you something. God may not do that with you. He may just want your $20. But for me, that was a time, a moment, a capturing of a spiritual journey. And it combines both of those perspectives of who God is. That's why today, I don't have any trouble believing that if God needs to get $20 to me, he can do it. Now, two million, that's a stretch. Or not. You see, that transcendence of God, the Elohim picture of who God is, allows me to believe that there is nothing beyond God's ability to take care of. If, if he can create a planet just by speaking it into order, don't you think he can take care of the biggest problem that you have? If your thing about trusting God is tied to your health and God himself is the one who designed who you are, don't you think he's good enough and big enough to cover that? Now, he may not cover it in your definitions of covered, but he doesn't promise to do that. He just promises never to leave you or forsake you. And so my and your perception of how big God is, the transcendence of God, immediately comes to bear on whether we're willing to trust him with the little stuff of our lives. But the Yahweh part, that part of this picture, is critical. Because if all you have is a belief that God's big enough that if he wanted to, he could take care of my stuff, the Yahweh argues that he does in fact want to. Because he, Yahweh, is... The God who says, let's do this thing called life together. And then he gives us the guidelines to do it according to his plan. And just like Abram, this God, Yahweh, will say to you, according to what we find in the book of Isaiah, the teacher whispers over our ear, over our shoulders, into our ear, this is the way. Go here. Turn here. Don't do that. Do that. Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the God who says, let's do life together, is the one who says, I'll take that 20, or pick that up, or quit your job, or don't quit your job, or whatever. Your perception of who God is impacts your willingness to be obedient to him. Now, before this is all said and done, the next principle, I'm just going to say the principle here and read where I get it, and then we're going to pick it up either next week or the week after that. That's the first principle. Your perception of who God is definitively impacts your willingness to trust him. The second principle is God will position you to give you every opportunity to deepen your trust in him. He is trustworthy, but we need help learning to trust. And so, as with Abraham, he may say to you, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God is always about positioning us to be able to know him better so that we can be 100% obedient. How's it going with you in your life? Can you look at your life and trace the hand of God and say, you know what? I see God at work in my life today. 
Do you have evidence of Yahweh saying, let's do life together? Or do you just have a concept of God that's kind of stuck out there and doesn't get down into the feet on the dirty roads or the slick roads of our lives? Let's pray. Father, every one of us has had the opportunity this week to be reminded of who you are in your transcendence and also in your nearness. We are so grateful that you have not abandoned us to do life here by ourselves. And so many times we take that for granted. So many times we try to take that Elohim part of who you are and cram it into a little box that we carry around with us. and We refuse to allow you to be who you are and to do what you do. We pray that you would forgive us for that. Give us the spiritual sensitivity to even see when we're doing that. And then step near and close and hold our heart in your hands and help us to choose well this morning. Father, if there's anyone here who needs to be reminded, needs to be brought back to that point of awareness of just how worthy you are and just how near you are, work in the lives of your people even now. For those who don't know you, we pray that you would give them a very true sense of desperation that would drive them to the foot of the cross where they find your greatest supply in your son, Jesus Christ. For all of us, take us deeper in Jesus' name. Let's stand. Invitation time is yours. Aaron's down here. I'll be down. Pray with you. Talk with you. Whatever it is that God's dealing with you, and you need us to assist you in that. Now's your time. You come.